0: We're going to study tonight a very famous tshuva. It's probably not an exaggeration to say it is one of the most widely quoted tshuvas in the halachic literature. It is a very controversial tshuva. Much of the debate revolves around whether we do or do not accept it, or if we accept it somewhat, how much do we accept it. It is also a tshuva that has spilled over into general culture, outside the... Halachic literature. This tshuva is the central, is at the center of one of the most famous Jewish novels of the 20th century, of all time probably, Chaim Grada's Aguna. <clears throat> the tshuva is both a technical tshuva about the laws of Aguna as well as a litmus test, a test case about one's approach to halacha, which really is what Grada was using it as, but beyond that, as we'll see, it is a tshuva of immense practical, practical impact, and uh, and, and it says something as well about one's philosophy toward halacha, as to how we rigidly we have to interpret Talmudic precedent. The tshuva is by, it usually referred to as the tshuva of Rabbi of Verdun. Verdun is a city in France. It is generally agreed today that the figure who authored this tshuva, was actually Rebilezer of Verona, an Italian Talmudist, who was a disciple of the Rehazakim. Um, Verdun is the way it's written in many three Rishonim, but it's generally understood to have been Rebilezer of Verona. The tshuva, we don't have his actual tshuvas, we have it cited in secondary sources, tertiary sources, the texts themselves are varying degrees of completeness and of textual accuracy, so it's, uh, it's, not the, it's not the most polished and uh, elegantly written text that we have, but we'll, we're going to study tonight one version of the tshuva as, as cited in the Sefer Ravya. The Ravya himself did not agree with this tshuva. He quotes the tshuva and he quotes the opinions of various other scholars who commented on it, including his own opinion, and he, he disagreed with it. But uh, the Ravya is one of the earliest, most authoritative sources for this tshuva, and we are, and this is what we're gonna to study tonight. The, the Rubilazar of Verdun or Verona was an early 13th century Talmudist, so the Chuva was written about 800 years ago. In order to understand the Chuva, we have to understand the background of the laws of Aguna. So Aguna means something somewhat different today than it used to mean in the classic Halakhic literature. Today we off- today we commonly use it to mean a woman who's chained to a husband who refuses to give her a get. In classic litera- classic halachic literature, the word aguna was used to mean a woman whose husband is missing, presumed dead, often missing and presumed dead, and therefore was uh, was unable to give her a get. He's probably dead. He might might be dead, but we don't know. We can't find him, and therefore she can't remarry. Aguna means chained. She's chained to a husband who is not giving her a get. In Talmudic times, this was because he wasn't around. The Gemara has several blocks discussing the laws of Aguna and the end of Yivamas. The laws of the laws of Aguna are actually among the most complicated, uh, they have they have just about the richest literature of any area of Halacha. When I studied Aguna in Kolo a number of years ago, I enjoyed intellectually. I enjoyed the subject uh, very much. It was a, it's a fascinating literature. The the, the the literary qualities of some of the chuvas, the, the logic, the the halachic intricacies of it. I used to tell my I feel guilty having even intellectual enjoyment from a from a discipline which is completely from beginning to end about human misery, death, uh, missing husbands, uh, desperate women who are chained and stuck and. Uh, it, 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 is, it is just, you know, the, the actual human beings involved are you know, miserable and in, in, in dire, dire straits from beginning to end. So I felt pretty bad about enjoying the study of it. But I guess that's uh, the nature of Torah, I suppose. But the, the laws of Aguna are vast and complicated. There, there are only a few blots in the Talmud about it. A few blot is I mean a lot. More. What you just said, Irma. Yes. Ter- to translate what you just said. Translate. Yes, so so I was saying that the, the laws of Agonah... You said, you, said you, you use an expression, the Hebrew expression. Oh, B'kud HaShem Yisharim mesam Ch'elev. B'kud HaShem Yisharim Ch'elev is a postic in Tehillim. We say it in the Psuka de Zimmer of Shabbos morning. It means B'kud HaShem, the commandments of HaShem, the laws of HaShem, are Yisharim, they're upright, they're straight, and they're Mesam Ch'elev, they, they gladden the heart. The, the study of Torah gladdens the heart. This is why we're not allowed to study Torah on, on Tisha B'Av, A's not allowed to study torah because they're, because they're, because on those on those times we're supposed to be sad, and Torah would make a person happy and that's why we don't study torah you know, Torah is inherently something that's joyous and that that's that's the poster Chazal bring post can bring when they say that Torah is incompatible with uh with being in a melancholic and sad state of mind so the So the the Gemara has a few blad of Aguna, and then the subsequent literature explodes into thousands of pages of uh, of tshuvas. One of the key one of the key discussions in the Gemara is the evocatively named Mayim Shainla himself, infinite waters, waters that have no end. That sounds like a uh, a uh, interesting kabbalistic concept, waters with no end, but actually it's not. Actually, Mayim Shainla himself is a somewhat figurative, figurative description for a prosaic reality. Mayim lemsof, as opposed to Mayim sof, waters that do have an end, Mayim sof means that the water's end is close enough that a person standing on the edge of the water can see all the way around the water, a small lake or something, where a pond, where a person, a river, where, where a person can see from end to end and see that the, you can see the land all the way around the water. And Mayim She'en Lemsof is the water is large enough, or even a river, if the river extends far enough out of your eyesight, where the, you cannot see the, the end of the water. What's the difference? Why is that important? So the Mishnah, the Gemara, and the end of Yavamas talk about a person who fell into Mayim She'en himself or Mayim She'esh himself. If the person fell into Mayim She'esh himself, water where the observer can see all the way around the edge of the water, and he doesn't come out for a certain amount of time, then he can be presumed dead because you can't survive without uh, breathing apparatus under the water for an indefinite amount of time. So once you see him go under, and you watch the edges of the water, and, you, and I mean, obviously if you could help him, you're supposed to help him, you're not supposed to sit there watching. But the point is, if you were, if you were on the edge, and, and, and you were there long enough observing, and you saw that no one came out for the amount of time that a person can survive and breathe underwater, I think about our talks about it, there's an underground grotto that he could have found shelter. But putting aside though those technical details... Basically, if the Mayim is Lem Sof, you can see all the way around on the edges, so you know he never came out, and too much time has elapsed for him to have survived without air under the water. That is Mayim She'yeshlem himself, and he is definitively dead. He can be presumed dead beyond the shadow of a doubt, and therefore his wife can remarry, his widow can remarry. That is Mayim She'yeshlem Sov. Mayim She'elam literally, again, waters that have no end, waters that you, the observer can't see the end of the water, then if the person fell in, he cannot be conclusively presumed dead. Because maybe under the water he swam, or the, or the currents carried him out of sight of the observer, and out of sight of the observer he washed onto dry land, or he crawled and swam onto dry land and got out. And therefore, you can't be absolutely absolutely sure. The observer who's watching the edges of the water that he can see, he can't see all the edges of the water. At least one of the water's edges is out of his uh, out of his out of his sight. And therefore, the person cannot be be conclusively presumed to be dead because maybe he made it out and uh, went on went on his way. Now it's clear, even Mayim Shainla himself, he's probably dead. the The assumptions are the ship sank, the ship sank, and and and, and he fell into the water. We, we assume he's probably dead. The, the post can call it a rove. Rove on it by him, He is more likely dead than alive. But nevertheless, that is not enough to permit the, the widow to remarry. He might, he's probably dead, but he's not certainly dead. In this context, at least, to allow the widow to remarry, we require certainty. We have to be sure, absolutely sure, that the man is dead. Mayim Shayla himself, he's likely dead, but he's not certainly dead. And therefore, therefore, the woman cannot remarry. We generally say that's Drabanan. We generally say that that's a Chomer Medrabanan, not to let her remarry Medirai, so we would be Selmech on the Rove, and we would presume him dead. But Medrabanan, we're Machmer Lechatkhila, uh, that we cannot presume the woman dead, and we and the man dead, and therefore we cannot let the woman remarry. So, in a nutshell, that is the very, very famous Sugya of Mayim Shein Lem and countless, countless tshuvas of Aguna begin with this situation. A ship sank. A raft capsized, a plane went down over water, and the person obviously fell into the water. And the question is, did he make it out alive? We don't know. We don't have an observer who sat there and, 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 and carefully monitored the edges of the water to, know, to notice if anyone came out. That is more or less uh, a, a variation of Mayim Shein Lem Sof. And the loch is Asr. So many, many agunachubas begin with this situation, that on the surface it sounds like Mayim Shein Lem Sof, which is Asr. And then the the question is, can we find some additional line of reasoning, can we find some additional mitigating circumstances that allow us to conclude that the man is indeed dead? Again, if you find the body and you recognize the body, that's fine. But the question is, you don't have a body, or sometimes the body is not retrieved until it's too badly decomposed to be identifiable with any degree of certainty. So then the question is, under what circumstances can we assume that he's dead conclusively, with enough certainty to allow his widow to remarry, that is the sugya of Mayim Shein Lemsov. So against this backdrop, we have the tshuva of Rebilezer Rabbi of Ardun, that's what it's usually called, again, even though it's actually, apparently, Rebilezer of Arona. So, again, the tshuva we have is second or third hand, it's not even clear, it's in the ravya. it's apparently recorded by a student of Rebilezer of Ardun, or a grand student of his, reporting what his rebbe had said, or the name of Rebilezer of Ardun, the chain of custody is not entirely clear here, but we have some other scholars who are quoting a a a, a tshuva of Rabbi Eliezer of Verdun. So we they begin with a uh, with a, you know, kind of poetic uh, poetic introduction. Shlomo Yitein, shalom liyerev, lechosh Veshmo. The the writer is conveying his uh, his uh, his respects and his, his his reverence toward the Chachamim who he's writing to. That uh, for, for on whose behalf Hashem created uh, Hashem created good because they're completely chachamim and they're noble people and wonderful people. He gave his chachma to them and so on. He, he gave a portion of his chachma to them. They're the ones who can paskin Les or lahatir Latamo, Latara, They're the ones who understand Torah. They're the ones who are going to decide this issue. And uh, the chachamim of Rhin, of Rhinus of the Rhine and Cologne. Different regions in Germany, the, the great regions of the Balitosis, and Ani Avdechem I, the young one, your servant. Shemei I drink your water. Baafreglechem Ani Matabek. These are typical uh, traditional Jewish uh, formulations of respect, of deference, of reverence to great. So he's introducing himself. He's saying that I'm going to bring to your attention a halachic argument, and I'm going to solicit your opinion. On to the, as to the halachic position I'm going to be presenting. I the, the writer says, I am going to present the, the teaching, the ruling of my master, Rebbe Leezer of uh, Ardan to you. The, the, the text here is somewhat corrupt. There are some of the suggestions of the editors I put here in brackets in various places. Some of them I just, you know, we, we don't know what it's supposed to say, I just left it out. But basically... He said, I'm going to present to you a, uh, a, a, a halachic argument of my teacher, Rabbi Lezer of Verona. Divri Mori Relezer of Verona, Shumara de Ovda. He was the one who first ruled on this case, the case that I am going to, the, the, the case that he was the, he was the first one to rule on. I'm going to present his argument to you for your endorsement to see what you have to say about this case. So again, he doesn't even tell you what the case was. The case, we, we gather from the ensuing, ensuing discussion and from other sources, the case apparently was there was a ship. The ship was lost at sea in a terrible storm. He'll give some details soon. The ship was lost at sea in a terrible storm. body wasn't found. The person is presumed dead. Can his wife remarry? A pretty classic case of Mayim Shein Lemsof, which again poses a great problem because Mayim Shein Lemsof ishto Asura. We can't permit a woman to remarry if all we have is Mayim Shein Lemsof, so what basis for leniency is there in this case, which sounds on the surface like it was a pretty uh, textbook uh, case of shipwreck? How can we allow the woman to remarry? Ro'ani, says Rebbe Lezer of Verona, Midakamar mayim she'en lemsof The Gemara's language, when it records the din of mayim Lem Sof, it says exactly those words. Mishnah mayim she'en Sof, ishto asura. Olam. la'olam. Mishnah didn't say she is permanently Indefinitely prohibited. It just said Asura. It didn't say forever Asura. We don't usually say that. When we say, you know, you allowed to eat uh, non kosher food and shellfish, and you, uh, and you know, whenever we list things that are Asura, we don't typically add the word La'olam. But Rabbi of felt this was a diuk. It didn't say his wife is prohibited La'olam. So he inferred from that Shema Minad la La'olam Kamar the Mishnah, the Gemara, is, is leaving the door open. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not telling you absolutely that she is absolutely permanently prohibited. She's usher, yes, but not la'olam, not forever. Be'kach nira, and it seems to me, says Rebbe Lezer done, Sh'tolu Rebbe Seinu Hadavar al dar v'dar The Gemara left it up to the judgment and discretion of later authorities. The starting point is usher, yes. You can't just be meikil off the bat. But, if in your discretion, in a given situation, you have reason to believe, you, the Chachamim, the gedolei Torah of a given generation, you have reason to believe that this is uh, a case where he's more so than the, than, than the default presumptively dead, more likely than the standard case that he's dead, you have the right to make that call, that yes, he's dead, and we can allow the woman to remarry. It's the job of the Chachamim to carefully consider and uh, insightfully consider the details of the case uh, that it happens in their generation. Now, it's true. They can't just rely on the fact that, oh, shipwreck, most shipwrecks, people die, he's probably dead. That's not good enough. That's the Gemara's point, that you can't, that's not enough to go on. However, in the age, if you have other arguments that indicate that he's probably dead, together with the rove, that most shipwrecks to begin with, people are, people die. To some samkuala rove, if you have other chazakos that you can combine with the rove to yield the conclusion of dead, that you can rely on. Chazal just meant that the starting point is before you add any, any additional mitigating considerations, you can't presume him dead. But once the Chachamim feel that there are significant, substantial, and significant additional considerations in their case, then they have the right to declare him dead. Bindavki says, uh, like, air case. He says, there are many chazakas, many reasons to presume the fellow dead. Chada, reason number one, and this is the reason that is most famously associated with this tshuva. This is the key, the key argument to the tshuva that everyone quotes to the name of of Ardan. Sha'atai says, Sheva seven years. It has been seven years since the accident. Another Gersa says, four years. It has been seven years or four years since the, the ill-fated voyage where the ship Capsized, founder,ed and people were lost um, near different cities in Italy. He says, if "I know, maybe Pizarro." According to some of this host. so the ship was lost uh, seven years ago or four years ago. And erev Shabbos, the, the the voyage occurred on an erev Shabbos. Erev Shabbos, Nasa, Sfina, the ship where the the the, the missing husband was on. Shaliv Barbi Shlomo Benoshor Yaakov MiVerona, the man who was lost. His name was Shlomo, the son of Yaakov. And there was another Jew with his son, Sheirotelavio la Verona, Lamda Torah, a father who was taking his kid to Yeshiva to learn Torah in Verona. And he was from the community of Fano. Not immediately clear why all these details are relevant, but he's, he's giving you some of the background of the story. Uvalel Shabbos. The night of Shabbos, there was a terrible, terrible storm. Ruach Sarabayam. Lo Zakru Komoso, kemoso, machsik lorachayam. They could not remember in living memory such a terrible storm. We talk about storms, a 10 year storm, a 100 year storm. This was one of those 100 year storms. Nobody could remember such a, such a terrible, terrible storm. And the Shamanu, the, the news was, the, the, what people said was, Ki that terrible night of uh, unprecedented storms, more than 60 ships. Again, I, I'm not sure each ship was a 300 person ship, but whatever a ship was, more than 60 ships. Uh, broke up and were lost on that night. Another ship that had Jewish passengers foundered on that Shabbos. Those people apparently made it to shore, but uh, this was a terrible, terrible storm. Ships were breaking up all over the place. Now going back to the key argument, it's been seven years. He says, if Shlomo, these other people who were missing, if they were alive. How could how would how can it be? What, what, what do you think happened here? Seven years, they're just uh, they're radio silence. They're, they're off the grid. What do you think is happening to them for seven years? <inaudible> On that ship, we have other other uh, other circumstantial evidence that the ship is dead. Nimsu Mishbri asfina. We found uh, flotsam of the boat of the ship. It had you know, pieces of it uh, turned up. kalem shel shemen. There were. There were uh, utensils of oil that had been on the, that were found on the edge of the sea near those cities that uh, and, and, and the Jew who was on that ship with his son he, he had Caleb full of shaman you know, we don 't even know what happened to the ship. The ship the ship, the ship embarked it was never heard from again we don 't even know for sure that the ship foundered. We know that the ship uh, began its voyage. There was a terrible storm in which tons of ships broke up, and this ship was never seen again so we have strong circumstantial evidence that the ship broke up, because we have pieces of what look like the ship were washed ashore, and we have Calum of Shemin. We have, there could be other Caleb of Shemin in the world, but we know that one of the passengers on that ship, the father and son we mentioned before, they had two jars, two kind of receptacles of oil, and those were found on the seashore, and the wife of that man recognized her, her husband's, her son's uh, oil jars, and uh, they found some of the oil, and they, so, so, so all this indicates that the ship did indeed break up, now again, the ship broke up, maybe Rabbi, Shlomo, maybe Rabbi Shlomo of Verona, maybe he made it alive, maybe, maybe he, uh, he made it to shore. This man, Rabbi Shlomo of Verona, that we're uh, unsure of his fate, that we're trying to match to his wife, he was a young man, he was about 24 or less, I'm not sure exactly how old he was, the author writes. The Ishto was a young woman also, she was 20 or so, they had two children, a young son and daughter. He also we'll, we'll see again why some of this, at least some of this, we'll see why it's relevant soon. Aviv The father was wealthy. His father was still alive. His father was wealthy. His father was rich, and his father sent uh, apparently investigators. He sent emissaries to Spain, to various places, to, to inquire about. Uh, he, he sent emissaries around. So it's not clear what these emissaries were supposed to do. But uh, the, the details here are a little bit hazy. But he says Chazaka. He says Chazaka. Sherei Ben Over al Kibur as a chazaka, the son wouldn't have violated Kibar avaim by running off and leaving his father uh, desperately looking for him. And also his wife. V'od chazaka. Sheh no over al his bone. A man has uh, binding, binding legal obligations to his wife. We probably would say he has emotional obligations to his wife, not to just vanish and leave her uh, agonizing over his fate. But he puts it in a legal context. He has legal obligations to his wife that he's not allowed to shirk. So, to say that he just made it to shore and abandoned his family without contacting them and letting them know what happened to him is uh, a very dubious assumption. He left his little kids, his little boy and girl he left behind. A person has Rachmanus on his children. To say he would just abandon them to never see them again, how, how likely is that, it's that, he says. He had made some kind of commitment to Shwa with the Kenyan. Uh, that he had made a Kenyan to go back and teach someone Torah, to serve as a Malamite, I guess, to teach Torah to a certain person there. So, to say he, that he suddenly uh, abandoned all his commitments, all his, all his halakhic commitments, all his personal commitments, he abandoned his father, he abandoned his wife, he abandoned his kids, he abandoned the student he had promised to teach, he abandoned all that and just disappeared, took advantage of the, of the storm to disappear, all of that is highly, highly implausible. Bizani Omri says, everything I'm saying here is I say Lafis farasi, I say this based on uh, my opinion, based on what I've seen of the, of, of, based on what I understand to have been the, the fact here, the circumstances. Shashamati kain. shall kol Ela, that for all these details, for all these chazakas, all these bits of circumstantial evidence, based on all this, l'omar l'songcham l'aruba desfino shnitfu l'misa. Most people to begin with in a shipwreck are probably dead, and combined with the fact that even if he might have made it out alive, to say that he then behaved in such a unreasonable and un, uh, you know, such an uh, unacceptable way. All that is, is extremely not plausible, he says, so I think this is enough to presume him dead. of There is a sheet of Rebbe Meir in the Gemara that's choshesh for Miut for even a small chances of things. He's machmer that unless we're absolutely sure we can act in halacha, this is even uh, less than a Miut. The Gemara says Rebbe moda to Miuta to Miuta. Again, we don't have we don't have immediate immediate quantifications of these terms, but he says even Remeer draws the line somewhere. Remeyr says for uh, remote possibilities, but not super remote possibilities, he says, which which this would be. Lo he says. And, that, and then going back to his initial Dioq al he says, Lo talmud Mayim La Olam. All this explains my initial point. He says, I initially told you that the Gemara says Ishtuasura does not say Olam. The Mishnah leaves the door open that it's Osir. It's Osir to begin with. The starting point is Usr. But Osir is not the last word on the subject. Osir means that you begin with the position of Isser, but that things could change. And that, this is what the Gemara means, that if you investigate the facts further and you, and you put together additional, circum, additional circumstantial evidence and additional presumptions, again, yeah, none of this is ironclad. Trying to say a person, you know, trying to predict human behavior, nobody would do this, is always uh, a sucker's bet. There's always somebody who would do it. But nevertheless, all these things yield uh, strong presumptions, not irrefutable presumptions, but strong presumptions. And putting all this together, combined with the fact that people in shipwrecks usually die, and then to say that even if he lived, he would have acted in all these highly implausible ways, all this he fails is enough to say this is different enough from the default case of Mayim Sheinlem himself. This is a case where the Gemara gives the license to the Chacham of the generation to conclude, we think in a case like this he's probably dead, and therefore, he says, I would feel comfortable saying that he is dead. Now, he acknowledges. Yes? Yeah, I, just a question. Does, is there any discussion of the fact that the person could have been captured? Good question. Other posts do discuss the possibility of captured. He himself is going to discuss a, a related possibility in the next few lines. Maybe he actually does have a good reason for for abandoning his family. So let's take a look at that for a moment, and we'll get back to the question of capture in a minute. He says... Um, again he repeats the language from the beginning part of the tshuva, Kiyam Talah Dover, the Gmarjinsur La Olam. The the Gemara gives some latitude to the Chachamim and the Yureshimayim that uh, that that they can use their sechel and consider each case on its merits of whether we whether they, we, we we're pretty sure he's dead or not. Now he says, there are times where it is true a person can survive a shipwreck. He can be washed ashore. The Gemara actually gives two stories like that. The Gemara gives a story about Rabbi Kiva and a story, a story about another story. The Gemara actually has two narratives about the, the Chachme Mishnah who were caught in shipwrecks and actually survived. They actually were washed ashore and came out alive. And, 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 the, and the response was, of the other Chachamim was, We see how prescient, how great the Chachamim were. They realized, that it's possible, they realized we shouldn't be so quick even if the circumstances seem very, very likely that he's dead, not muchach, maybe he's alive. So even though that's true, he says there is a the possibility of Golom Bilu that the waves could have carried him out and, uh, and washed him out, washed him safely ashore. That is possible, he says. But uh, and why isn't he coming back? So Aaron suggested maybe he's not coming back because he was captured. He suggested other possibility. He has creditors, he's on the run from someone that he has people who are out to get him, and if they would know where he was, they would grab him and all his money, or maybe, maybe grab him and his money, and throw him in jail, or torture him, whatever they would do. So a person does sometimes have a reason why he wants to make himself uh, scarce. All right, and the other, the other question will be captured. Then, of course, there are always the stories. I don't know how often it happens in real life, but it happens in fiction a lot. Someone uh, bumps his head and has amnesia and doesn't remember who he is. I don't know how often that happens in the real world, but there the, are the other concerns. Like, he acknowledges that there are people who are... On the run, you know, on the run from from creditors, on the run from who knows who, from, from people with uh, vendettas, from organized crime, you know, who, who knows why he's running? Or actually captured? He's been kidnapped somewhere. He's being held in, uh, as a uh, as a slave somewhere. He's been sold into slavery into and working on a you know working in a salt mine somewhere without a telephone. So you know, who knows where he is? So he doesn't give all these examples. He gives some of them. The, the point is, yes, it is possible. None of this none of this absolutely proves with one hundred percent certainty that he's dead. So he says, Hilkah, but he says, He's afraid of something. However, he says, In our case, he doesn't think these possibilities are credible. He doesn't really explain why. He just says, We know he has no creditors. Again, at least in fiction, there are always cases of the guy who has secret debts that nobody knows about. But practically, he says, We are reasonably assured. That he has no debts, so that he has no enemies he's hiding from, and therefore none of none of these, uh, you know, movie plot devices uh, are we chosh, are we to be choshesh for, and therefore we can safely assume him dead. And also, maybe maybe he m- maybe he's uh, sometimes a person runs away that he doesn't like his wife anymore. He wants to get, he wants to just get out of a bad marriage. That's possible, he says. So, but he says, yeah, if someone has eva belibo alishto, he has. Uh, He has uh, hatred toward his wife. Maybe because he just doesn't like her. Or maybe he has some kind of sexual dysfunction. So, none of that applies here. Again, how do you know? He doesn't explain. Postkim often do this when when Postkim investigates an Naguna case. Very often, one important component you'll more often than not you'll see the Postkim say, "In order to." You have to argue that he's probably dead and he's not just hiding somewhere. They'll often mention that the marriage was good. They had a happy, had a happy marriage and a good relationship, and therefore there's no reason to believe that he's uh, hiding himself from her. Okay, he doesn't really tell you how he knows this, but he just tells you, given that uh, these, these, these possibilities do not apply here. Al-Kain, he says, We allow the woman to remarry. And now he goes even further. And this is a, a critical point in the laws of Aguna. In Aguna, there is no middle ground. There's, you know, some, in other areas of halacha, we say Asr, you know, we say mitzvah, we say oser, we say mutter, neutral. You know, other areas of halacha, some things are neutral. Sometimes things are chayev, sometimes things are Asr, and sometimes they're mutter. Aguna, you don't really have mutter. If you believe the woman is asura, if you don't have sufficient evidence to allow her to remarry, then Asr, she's not allowed to remarry. If you believe there is there is evidence, you can't stay neutral. The, the, the woman is in, a, is in a desperate state. She's tied to a, to a non existent marriage. So there's a tremendous, tremendous mitzvah to find basis to allow her to remarry. So there's no neutral. If, if you don't think the bar of evidence has been met, then it's usr. If you do think the bar of evidence has been met, you can't just be machmer. You can't just be from. He says, Vakal Tamil Chacham, Shayyarashimayim, Belibo, any Tamil Chacham who has Yerashimayim, so usually Yerashimayim means Vimachmer. Here it means Vimachil, he says, Ladakte, K'latira V'lo l'osra. Yerushimayim says you have to have Rachmanus on the poor woman uh, someone who's uh, who's afraid of God says I have a I have a woman who's desperate to remarry and that's Yerush as well all the people in Lombardia all say they all swear that, they, that they're convinced that the people in that ship are dead that nobody survived that terrible night the ships that were lost and the Goyim also who were in that ship uh, that also weren't found none of the people on the, on the lost ship were ever turned up not the sailors, not the other people on the ship, the passengers. More than, uh, more than 22 people were lost in that ship. And therefore, once again, more Umdinas, he's almost certainly dead. And this is a critical point. When you're dealing with aguna, unlike other areas of halacha, they are know So you say, if you're not sure, you'll be machmeri. We won't allow this. We'll, we'll find another solution to a problem. You, know, you have an eruv. You don't like the, you have a eruv, build a better eruv. Don't carry, you know, whatever it is. Okay, you can do that. But when you're dealing with aguna, there is no middle ground. Condemning a woman to a life of solitude is not acceptable. If there's a hector, it's not acceptable. Being mature a woman to get married when her husband might be alive is also not acceptable. So the, so the stakes are so high. The stakes are tremendously high on both sides. The, the Avera of ish is a terrible, terrible Avera it causes mamzeris. It can cause mamzeris. The Avera of condemning a woman to a life of loneliness is also a terrible, terrible thing. So the stakes are just so immense on both sides... That, that's why, that's why Agurah is such a rich and, and vast literature, because, because, because it's so important, because both sides are, are tremendously powerful concerns, and that's why it's, uh, it's such a difficult topic. So Rubelezer of Arona says that he thinks that the evidence here does point in the direction of leniency, and therefore anyone who has Yerushimayim should accept his arguments and should say, we have to be maykill, we have to save this poor woman from being condemned to a life of loneliness. He says that uh, he, he, has, he has further arguments for all this, to, to argue for the, for the legitimacy of these types of considerations, he says. But I, I, I haven't written this at length, he says. I just wrote a uh, summary chuva, a cursory chuva, Loherakti lo herachti I wrote it just uh, off the cuff, kind of, based on my initial reflection of what I heard about the case. And um, if you respond to me what you think, and you tell me, uh, you know, you, 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 and you subject it to your analysis, tell me what you think, I can respond to you for, uh, with further information, he says. Even though I heard all this from, from trustworthy people, but still, I, I'd, I'd like to have a more authoritative account of what happens. If you, if you give me the official version, you, you write and sign and send to me what happened, then we can discuss this further. And I would have written, uh, I can write even further, he says, she Again, he reiterates, my opinion is, any Talmud Chacham will merit the, the favor of heaven, he says, if he can be lenient in this case. Because the Isha Haguna, we have a worthy woman, a deserving woman, Yoshevas Haguna, Kol Kach Shalom rabbis. it's been seven years already, this young woman is condemned to uh, singlehood for seven years. And again, we find Harbe chashur Rabbecheiru, L'Igud, Benos Yisrael, we find the Chachamim cared a great deal about, uh, about daughters of Israel becoming Haguna, being Haguna, and therefore, yira Rabosai, Ba'anir Rabbeinei Ham you should write to me what you think, to agree with me, hopefully, and with my, my colleagues who feel this way as well, and that would be great. So this, is the, this is the seminal tshuva of Rebilezer of Verona, a tremendous, tremendous leniency in the laws of aguna, even though Mayim Sheinlem himself is usher. If you have other circumstantial evidence that tells you he's probably dead, you can couple that with the fact that most Mayim Sheinlem himself people are dead, and we matter the Isha. In particular, the, the, the most widely quoted umdana of his case is the umdana that it was a long time. It was a long time and nobody's heard from him. That is wildly implausible. Why would he not be telling us where he is? Again, there are always possibilities. Like we said, he was captured. He has, uh, he's on the run from someone. You know, There are always possibilities. But at the end of the day, in his case, he felt these were not realistic possibilities. And in general, if we don't have uh, a legitimate reason for why he'd be on the run, even though it's possible he is for some reason that we can fathom, Nevertheless, he fails. The Gemara did not say Mayim Channel himself is absolutely usher. He is, uh, and therefore we have the right to say that at some point it becomes mutter, and after a certain amount of time has passed, Post can give different figures. In his case, it was either seven years or four years. Some Post can say you need four years, some say two years, some say one year. Various figures Post can give, but after a certain appropriate time has passed, we have the right to presume him dead. This is the tremendous Kula of Rebilezer of Verona. Rabbi Grossman? Yes. on whether or not if she's allowed to be remarried that she also can collect or at least that she's no longer connected to him that she can collect her uh, uh, ketubah or are those separate like if, if, if she's freed from being an agunic and can remarry does she automatically now be considered able to collect the via uh, the, the ketubah or does that require a higher level? Of so so that, that's a good question the question is that, that in general do we assume that the level of evidence and testimony necessary to uh, permit a woman to remarry how does that relate to the level of testimony necessary for other purposes in halacha? So then, so you know, so chuva. You're, you're alluding to the fact that in halacha we know that many different types of halachas have their own sets of, of evidence. So when it comes to dina we usually say al pi shnayim aidem bishnayim. When it comes to Gitan and kedushin, we typically need to aid them. To aid them at a wedding, to aid them uh, sign a divorce, and so on. We generally need to. Aguna happened question of Meis bila testifying to the death of a husband is an unusual uh, exception that the harm relied on one. But uh, that, that's an exception to the rule that Dovashim Erevan needs two. Isser typically needs only one. Kashrut's questions. One Jew is, is allowed to tell you, what, uh, tell you the status of some food. So, Ksuva normally needs two aid. So, if we, if we were lying, let's say, for example, we rely on an eight echad who says meis baile. One, one of the things that does allow us to presume somebody dead is the testimony of a single witness who says that he saw the husband die. That would be enough to allow her to remarry. That would not be a lot, enough, as, as I recall, to collect the because one eight is never enough to collect the So there, there, there is a lot of discussion about that, and I'm not going to go too much further down, down that road because I, I don't remember the sources... Clearly, and I, I might say something uh, badly mistaken if I try to uh, say too much without having the text in front of me, but you, the basic point is correct, that, that they are not automatically Tali habaha, that, just, that just because we have evidence that allows her to remarry, that might not be enough to allow her to collect a And uh, yes, yeah, so, that, so it would not necessarily, I, I think it would not necessarily be enough, as I recall, but it's, it's a good question. I, I would have to check to make, to make sure about that. So this is the tshuva of Rebilezer of Verona, Quoted in the Ravya, in the Ravya, there are two Chachamim who then proceed to disagree with him. One of them is a one of them is a figure I am not that familiar with. The it is a tshuva of a Rabbi who's named 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 Rabbi R- R- Avram, Rabbi Moshe. I don't know who he is exactly. He disagrees, and then the Raviyah himself, the Avi Ezri, Rabbi Ezer ben Yoel Halevi, he then writes a tshuva, disagreeing with Rabbi Leezer of Verona, and I have excerpted part of his tshuva just to understand what the counterarguments are. He begins with typical humility, he writes, I'm not kiddai to resolve machlokis between such great chachamim, he says. However, he says, you're, you're, you're pressing me for an answer, so I feel obligated to express my opinion. His opinion is, he says, that, and he says also the rabbis in Cologne agree with him, lahachmer, that if the Chammim didn't give any heter, it's true the Kham didn't say the word la'olam, they also didn't give any heter. they didn't tell you any exceptions, they didn't tell you but if, if you have additional, additional information you can be lenient. They simply said, mayim shayn lamsof asura. So he says, when the wants to give a heter, when the when Yemar wants to give you heterim, he says, make exceptions, the does so, the knows how to uh, carve out exceptions. There are a lot of other cases where the said exceptions. Uh, in, in the laws of Agunah itself, it made exceptions. It told you certain leniencies about Agunah. The Gemara knows how to tell you sort of how to cool us. So if the Gemara meant that Mayim Shain himself is sometimes usher and sometimes mutter, depending on how much time has elapsed, it should have said so, he says. So he's being the, the opposite from the same Gemara where Rebilezer Verona was midaig from the fact that it didn't say la olam, that it means it's not Laolam. olam. He says just the opposite. The fact that it, it said a flat statement and didn't make any exceptions, that means that it's always usher. He says the Gemara is exactly the opposite. And I think that's, that is actually the position taken by more postkim that the diok of the Rav I think, is stronger. If the Gemara says something's Asr, then it's Asr. It didn't say La'olam. Why, why does it have to say La'olam? Anytime the Gemara says something, it's Asr, unless it makes an exception. So this is the Ravya's point, that if we're coming from the Gemara, then the argument is exactly the opposite, that the, the stimulus halashan of the Gemara indicates that it's always Asr, and that there are no exceptions. And then, then, he, then he makes a very interesting point, which is also widely quoted. He points to a central paradox in the laws of Agunah. And this paradox speaks to what we were saying before, that the, the stakes are so high on both sides. He says, in certain laws of Aguna, the Khamim were very, very mekel. As Aaron was saying before, usually we require two Adim for Mamanas, for Kedushin, for Gitsin, we always require two Adim, and two halakhally valid Adim, and hearsay is not acceptable, and so on. When it comes to Aguna, the Chammim were very, very mekel with respect to the standards of Adas. They allowed Adim who are not kosher Adim. Eid they allowed eidim who are krovim, let's say, who are not normally kosher them. They allowed even a non-Jew, if he's Metsiah if he's commenting without intent to give Edus, he just, he's just uh, he's just discussing the question in, a, in an informal context, we allow that. All these things would not be enough for De'Nemomanus. The Chazal were lenient about these things. <laughs> so, all of a sudden, when it comes to Mayim Shein himself. They were so machmer, he says. They, they said with, uh, that, that even though most people are probably dead, he has to be Maybe he's alive. Well, maybe the relative is dying. He's, he's lying. He's only one eight. So when did de Chazal decide to be machmer? When did de Chazal decide to be makel? He doesn't really give the most... Uh, he doesn't really give such a, an entirely clear explanation, but he says whenever it comes to witnesses, if there is testimony, even if it doesn't meet the normal standards of testimony, that's where Chazal were lenient. They were lenient to allow, to accept... Inferior testimony in the place of gold standard testimony. And the reason is because we believe the woman herself investigates when those testimony she, she, she verifies and corroborates. But the bottom line is anytime we have actual testimony, even though it's not what we normally require, that's good enough and we accept that for the purposes of Aguna. But when there's no testimony, you're just relying on presumptions, he's probably dead because the ship sank, because he loves his family and wouldn't abandon them. Presumptions are not enough. That's where, we're machmer. That's who, that's where we, 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 we insist on the full standard of proper evidence. We don't rely on simple, uh, simple you know, inconclusive circumstantial evidence. So, so that's the bottom line, he says. Without evidence, we get nowhere. Chazal now were lenient in what kind of evidence they accepted, but without evidence, with zero evidence at all, all the presumptions in the world you can create, the Gemara says, Mayim Shayn himself is user, and you can't just say, well, in this case, in that case, maybe after a long enough time, that, the, the, gemara do, the, gemara, the Gemara doesn't open that door for you, he says, and therefore we have, we have no right to do that. And these are really, kind of, philosophically, the two approaches in Halacha here. We have the, the Rav the, the, the strict view, who says that I have a Gemara. The Gemara says, aster. We have no right to start saying, well, sometimes usr, sometimes mutter. It's all relative. It depends on the case, and it's subjective, and we use our own judgment. The Gemara says, Usr, We have to accept that. On the other, on the other side of the, of the coin is Rabbi Lezer Verona. He says, yeah, the Gemara says, Usr. But the Gemara never meant to say, it's always us, or judgment is always important, and we have the right, and the, the Gemara leaves us the right to exercise our judgment, and the Gemara just meant that the initial point should be us, or without uh, a good reason to say otherwise, but they did leave it up to us to decide uh, whether us is really the right way to go in such a case, and that's why in, uh, that's why we have the right to say, based on the, specifically, particularly, in terms of the, what we call, all trace of him is gone, we haven't heard from him for years, that's the great leniency of Rabbi Ezra of Verona that, uh, that 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 we use Avad Zichro to say that he's probably dead, even though Mayim Shem himself is unsure. When you throw in Avad Zichro, he's been gone for a while and nobody's heard from him, then we can be lenient. How do we pass on this machlokas? As I mentioned earlier, this has been discussed uh, at in a tremendous number of tshuvahs. This is one of the most, probably one of the most widely quoted tshuvahs in halacha. Rabbi Chaim Jachter. In a, in, a, uh, in a characteristically good and interesting discussion of the rabbinic deliberations about the goodness of the World Trade Center, World Trade Center didn't actually involve water. involved fire and uh, building collapses. But the, ultimately the issue to some extent was Mayim Shain Lemsof. We have a huge uh, catastrophe, and most people there are probably dead, but maybe it's possible somebody survived. So to a certain extent we view that as a Mayim Shain Lemsof situation. So, Lemaise, the Bateh Din, were Matar, many, or all that goodness, maybe, even, of the World Trade Center. They had a variety of different arguments. You can read Rabbi Jachter, you can read uh, in great detail, and very lucidly, very readably, but in great detail, all the various arguments that the various Rabbanim in the U.S. and Eretz Yisrael proposed to be Matar, the various women. So, one of the points uh, that Rabbi Jachter discusses is, is this question of, this question of Rebillazer of Ardun, he says, when it comes to Mayim Shailam himself, he says there are six kulos, six classes of kulos, of leniencies, that the postkim carved out, that even though Mayim Shailam himself is normally usher. we have six different cases where postkim are lenient. Number five is Rebillazer of Ardun. He says Rebillazer of says she's not forbidden forever. If a very long time passes, then the great rabbinical authorities have the right to presume her dead. And postkim he says, have vigorously debated the cogency of this argument. The Mordechai cites two major authorities who oppose Abeliezer of leniency. I think those are the Raviah and the, the other authority in the Raviah. The, the... Rabbi... Rabbi... Rabbi uh, what was his name? Rabbi Moshe ben... Uh, Rabbi... Rabbi Avram, Rabbi Moshe. But we have... Rabbi, 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 Rabbi we, have, we have Rabbi... We have Rabbi Eliezer of Arona, who is lenient and we have the other Rishadim who are Machmer. We have Akronim, who defend, uh, the, who defend Rabbi Lezar of Verona, some of the great early Svarjik poskim. Beis rejects it, he says. In practice, Halakha lemaisa. What do the later poskim say, poskim bring it as a sniff an additional reason to be lenient. What does that mean? That's a term of art that we have in many areas of Halakha, particularly Aguna, that we have certain reasons, certain Halakhic arguments that are not powerful enough to be dispositive in their own right, but if you find other good reasons, then you bring this in as a support, to, to bring additional support for a basis for leniency. And that is how Rebbe or Verona is usually treated by the post-chimp. It is it is a worthy enough argument to mention, if you also have other more reliable arguments as well. Again, if the reliable arguments are absolutely, obviously, uh, open and shod and mutter, then you may not need a sniff. But aguna, the stakes are so high, post even if even after they find something which is satisfactory, We'll generally still try to find sniffing, we'll try to find additional support. So that is, uh, that is really where Beliezer Verona ended up. It ended up as a sniff, as something that is used to support other more, more authoritative arguments. So the, so when Post can have another good argument, DNA or other types of arguments that allow us to conclude the person's dead but it's not, you know, absolutely, positively clear, they'll often say, and additionally, we have Rebelezer of Verona, who says that after a long time has elapsed, that itself is enough reason to, to presume him dead. So, as we mentioned earlier, Jackter says, how much time do you need? So Post can give different figures. In the case of the World Trade Center Agunos, he says, Ravadi Yosef told the Basin of America that was handling Agunos in New York, he told him, wait a year to, to let her remarry. Because once you wait a year, you have at least some version of Rebelezer of Verona, a year, again, in his case, there were either seven years or four years, and he didn't say exactly how much time you need, but I guess ravadia felt that the other evidence was strong enough that even though it's still good to have a sniff, we can bring of Verona in even after one year has elapsed. So by waiting one year, in addition to all the other hetarim in that case, we then gain some interpretations of of Verona, we, that Ovadzichro, he's gone, he hasn't come back after a year, he's probably dead. So again, so Halakha we, we don't use of Verona as a basis for leniency in and of itself, but in a case where there are other major factors, then we will use it as a sniff after a certain amount of time has passed. This is what uh, Chaim Grada Zaguna was about. There was a woman who didn't really have any major basis for leniency. Her husband was missing, and there wasn't substantial, uh, reliable basis to allow her to remarry. One maverick rav decided to be meikil, based largely or primarily on Rebbe Lezra Verona, the establishment, of course, rejected this because this is halachically wrong, that the, the halakha lemaisa, as has been developed over the centuries, is that we do not rely on Abel of Verona, even though, again, he was a great Rishon and there were other great post who held like him, but halacha develops consensus, Halacha develops a tradition about how we paskin. The halacha is we do not paskin like a Verona enough to rely on it by itself, and that's why that rav was wrong and the, but at the end of the day though it, it, it is a significant factor in halacha and many, many Agunachuvas, including those of the World Trade Center, do bring it in as a sniff that if you have other solid reasons, we will bring it in as a sniff and sometimes we'll recommend that you wait a certain period of time to be able to invoke Ulyazer of Arona, and that is one additional sniff to allow a woman to remarry, the sniff of Avad Zichro, he's been gone for a long enough time, we have no, re- we have no other explanation, no plausible explanation for where he is, if he's not here That is one major sniff that Postkin will use, again, provided they have a, a, a more authoritative reason to allow the woman to remarry.